0: Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always. And pray, Oh, Father, work through my weakness by the power of your Spirit to help us understand your words, ways, love, the help you give to your. Church and how gracious you are with us. Think about baptism. I pray that you would in our understanding, our faith, our unity. Be gracious and kind to us as we study your words that are eternally true forever. Amen. Well, it's clear that disciples are made uh, by baptizing, Um, and I just want to kind of take an underbrush kind of Christian sect that's a heresy just off the table, because I never say anything about it, and it always just bugs me. There is a sect within Christendom that says that baptism was only for the Jews who became Christians. And that it wasn't something that was supposed to be a, a perpetual in the life of Christ's church as the gospel spread through all the nations. Um, what does the Great Commission say? What does it say? It doesn't say make disciples of all the Jews who live among all the nations. It's not what it says. Right? It says make disciples of all nations. And then what do we see when you read through the book of Acts? You see the gospel going forth and from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth and people being converted to Christ and baptized. Okay. Can we just move on from that now? It has nothing to do with today. <laughs> Pastorally, I have a couple goals today and over the next two weeks that are going to seem like they're at odds with one another. But I don't believe they are. The first goal is this. I want to raise the importance of baptism in your heart and mind as to the level of, the, of what, the way Scripture does. And so oftentimes the meaning of baptism is reduced from how Scripture teaches about baptism. So I want to elevate our thinking to how Scripture talks and speaks of baptism so that it means what Scripture talks and speaks of in our hearts and lives and in our thinking. Okay? So I want to raise the importance of Baptism. The second goal is this simultaneously at the same time, I want to lower the willingness for division in Christ Church over baptism. So, at the same time, I want to lower our willingness for division in Christ Church over baptism. Meaning this, there are ways for those who practice or believe infant baptism is Christian and those who practice believer's baptism to live together in one particular local church. There are ways to do that. And what I want to do is lower the willingness for division in Christ's church and and for us to consider ways that we might do that. Ways that we might do that. Um, You know, to, to consider baptism more in the category than most of us have in the past of things like eschatology or spiritual gifts or other similar issues that I've already taught about this year. Now, I know that that seems like a crazy, radical idea, but it's just not. There really are ways to do this. What are we going to do? I don't know yet. I don't know yet. But there are ways to consider. There are things that can be done. So those two goals may seem at odds with one another, but I do believe they actually can work together if we just think for a moment about a few things. Just think about our love. You know, we started this year in Colossians chapter 3, right? And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And our love can find ways to live together peacefully, peacefully when we disagree. Our love should be able to find ways to live together in love when we disagree. Or even disagree strongly. But we live together when we prioritize weightier matters of the law. Our love. Secondly, the, the, our day, the day in which we live. We live in an evil day. Yeah. I always think about in the preaching in um, Acts chapter 3, I believe, you know, when I think Peter's preaching and he says. You know, this wicked and perverse generation. And I just think about us. And I think, well, we didn't crucify Jesus, you know. But, geez, for crying out loud, did we not crucify Jesus? And we're just going to need each other. And here's where this gets weird. Here's where, we're just weird. Are you okay with that? Me calling you weird, you're weird. Your priorities are weird. The ways you make decisions are weird. They don't make sense. So when we're talking about something like baptism, and we're talking about the day in which we live, and we're going to need each other, what's weird is that we would be more willing to suffer with and work together with groups called Christians who don't even believe the Trinity Sometimes thinking they're Christians, maybe unaware of what they actually think about the Trinity, and the vast amount of doctrinal difference that would come with uh, Christians like that or non-Christians like that, depending on exactly where they are, we would be more willing to do that unknowingly than for you know Baptists and Presbyterians to work. Work together who agree almost everything except baptism. That's weird. It's improper. It's wrong priorities. It's out of order from reality. It should not be that way. But that's what we would do. So I want you to think we're going to need each other. We're going to need each other. And historically, in post-Reformation with the Baptists who came soon after the Reformation, the Reformed Baptists and the Presbyterians. The only real point of contention, really, there's like a few little other things, you know, but the real point, the only point of disagreement, really, is baptism. That's it. There's maybe a few more disagreements with modern Baptists. But really, it's just baptism. And so the question really becomes, is it absolutely necessary that on on that one point that we have to divide? Is it actually that critical? That we must divide and find no way to live together? Here's the thing. In our case, in our church, the reason we're raising this question is because we have the pragmatic difficulty of already having someone who believes in infant baptism as a part of our church and has been a part of our church for a good while. So in a lot of ways, we're already doing this. So because we have the creases who believe the Scripture teaches that infant baptism is what the Scripture teaches. So at some level, we're already doing this. But I think our love should consider how we can do it better how we can do it better. So just in case anyone is wondering, I am a credo-baptist. I believe in believer's baptism. This church was planted believing in believer's baptism, meaning that once you're saved, you are baptized. That's just the simplicity of believer's baptism. I still hold to that. I do have a greater level of sympathy for those who hold to infant baptism at this point than I would have had when I planted the church. Mostly because of my lack of understanding. Mostly because of my lack of understanding. Also because I think my love has grown. I think my love has grown. And... Just to say it, you know, over at Trinity, they somehow have found a way to do this. And if I had never seen them do this, I don't know that I ever would have had any hope for it. Because it is a bit of a rare bean. It is a bit of a rare thing. But I, have, I recognize this, that my doctrine and Josh Creasy's doctrine is almost identical in every way except for baptism and what he's smart enough to not understand yet. That was just for him to listen to on the recording because he's in children's ministry. So that's doctrinally. But think personally. Don't you just love the creases? Do you think the only way forward has to be for us to send them on down the road to someone else, you know, someplace else that agrees with them on baptism? Do you really think that's the only option? Is Is that a necessity? That's the way churches have functioned. But must it function that way? So what can we do? What options do we have? Well, we'll be opening that up over the next several weeks. And can I just plead with you? Can I just plead with you to walk patiently over the next several weeks of thinking about this together, of being instructed about this together, of seeking to be wise and full of love about this together? What I don't want you to do is start making assumptions about what I might say or might not say. My hope is to surprise you a little bit. You know? Who wants to come to church and hear what they always thought? Like, what good is that? Fire that guy. You know? Now, some of you come to church thinking, well, as long as I hear everything that I already agreed with today, then church was a good day. But you ought not to come like that. Shame on you for that. So let's not be rash and let's not be brash in the way that we think about these things. I do believe that this process, whatever we end up doing, the process will be helpful for our humility and our godliness and our love. I think the process is going to be very helpful for us. Of course, one of the dangers here is that somehow you will think that I am... Reducing baptism's importance, but my actual goal is actually to increase its importance, but to lower its importance for its necessity in dividing. So here's the plan we're going to do four weeks, maybe five, on baptism. Hopefully, not more than that. Um, the first week, which was today, is the meaning of baptism, and this is going to be like a part one on the meaning of baptism. The second week, I'm going to make an argument, which is next week, I'm going to make an argument for believer's baptism, which is what I believe. And then you what I'm going to do on the third week, I'm going to make an argument against myself for infant baptism, even though I don't believe it's what the Scripture teaches. I'm going to make an argument for it. Look, both of these positions on baptism are Christian. They're historically Christian orthodoxy. Acceptable within the Christian tradition. Disagreeing? Yes. Different? Yes. Christian? Yes. Whereas many things are not Christian, these two are both Considered Christian by the majority of the church in history. So, um, both properly understood, that's the key. Both properly understood are Christian. The way Rome does infant baptism is not Christian. So, that's not what we're talking about. So, we need to think carefully. There's a difference between faithful Presbyterianism and Rome on infant baptism that's very dramatic. It's the difference between something that's Christian and something that's not Christian. And so, what are we going to do with church membership? You know, what is, you realize church membership at its essence is are you a Christian? Now, when we organize in a, local particular, in a particular local church, we have to have some level of agreement on doctrine. You know, we have to have some level of willingness to humbly walk together and not be schismatic within the body about this or that particular belief where um, we may have disagreement, like in our doctrine of the last things, like eschatology, or in some particulars about spiritual gifts, And so, could Calvin be a member of our church? Calvin held to infant baptism. Could Calvin be a member of our church? So these are the kinds of questions that you run into and that you have to wrestle with. All of, you know, Reformed Baptists and Presbyterians speak at each other's conferences, you know, They sell each other's books in their church resource centers. They preach at each other's churches. They work together on each other's ordination councils to ordain pastors. But they absolutely cannot become a member of each other's church. And I just think, might there not be a better way? Might there not be a better way to heal to overcome, to work through our division uh, in the church at large on baptism, baptism. So that's the final. That would be the final message. I'm just going to preach a message on how can we live together and what are our options. And there are a handful of options. And there are a handful of options that churches have considered for a long time. And uh, and different churches have come have chosen different options for various reasons. And so, what are our options? What can we do in our love and in our commitment to truth and how we choose to live together? So, that's what's coming in the coming weeks. When we begin to think about the meaning of baptism, though, when we begin to think about it, we kind of have to... Take a step back just for a second from talking about baptism itself, and think about what is God doing in the institution of baptism. All right, so Jesus has instituted many ordinances for His church, things like public worship, the reading of Scripture, preaching, um, Christ in the Word preached, prayer. These are ordinances to be done in Christ's church, and they are ways that God works. God uses these ordinances when we actually obey Him to save and sanctify. And then there are two ordinances that stand apart from those. They have different characteristics than those do. And so oftentimes... Uh, and, 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 and because they have a different nature to them than the rest, preaching, public worship, prayer, you know, because they have a different nature than the rest, they've been grouped by a different term, rather than just ordinances, though they are ordinances. So oftentimes in Reformed theology, they haven't been referred to only as ordinances, but as sacraments to distinguish them from the rest of the means of grace God uses to bless his people. The first being the Lord's table, the second being baptism. Most of you have heard us just use the word ordinance. But there's a reason why the word sacrament is used, and there's dangers to the word ordinance, and there's dangers to the word sacrament. What? is important, is what in the world are we saying, and what are we not saying? And as a church grows in maturity, like ours, it has to grow in learning to think carefully. We have to grow up. And we have to grow up and learn that you can't just broad brush stroke your doctrine. Your understanding of Scripture can't just be big, broad brushstrokes. You know what big, broad brushstrokes do? They cover and hide lots of important points of truth. And so we have to learn to think carefully. We have to learn to think with a better precision in our understanding of doctrine. And we have to understand how to make proper distinctions between truths. Unless we actually wash away truths with our big generalities. So, when we hear the word sacrament, depending on our background, what we're actually thinking here's what the way the majority of you would think. Um, you may think it's a term in the Bible, it's not. It's like the word Trinity. It's not a word in the Bible, but it describes the Bible's teaching. Same thing with a word like sacrament it is not a word in the Bible, but it describes the Bible's teaching. And I'm not going to go into a long history about where the word came from and all of that kind of stuff. But when we hear the word sacrament, depending on our background, what we actually are thinking is of Roman Catholicism. And uh, Roman Catholicism does does not obey God in the use of the sacraments. Roman Catholicism rebels against God and practices sacramentalism. And there's a big difference between the word sacrament and the word sacramentalism. Sacramentalism is by the sacraments you are saved. By the sacra- sacraments, God confers on you justifying grace. Whether you believe anything's happening, whether you believe anything about Jesus or about the sacrament itself, it's irregardless. That's sacramentalism. That's not what we're talking about. And sacramentalism is I am saved by the sacraments. I am justified by the sacraments, which is not a lot different than an Israelite thinking they're justified because they made a sacrifice. You understand? It's just no different than that. Protestant Reformed theology has always used the word sacrament to distinguish the Lord's table and baptism from the other ordinances, but in protest of Rome. To understand them not as conferring justifying grace or saving grace, but rather sanctifying grace to those who have already been justified, to those who have faith. God confers supernatural grace to you in Bible reading, in preaching, in prayer. How exactly? This is quite the mystery. To what extent and what all happens is quite the mystery. But it is true. Sanctifying grace from God himself comes to his believing saints. It's the same in the sacraments. Divine grace is conferred upon us in the partaking of the sacraments that is full of spiritual blessing and sanctification. Now, so why do I say all that? I say all that because in order to understand the meaning of baptism, we have to understand what a sacrament is and how it's different from the other means of grace before we get to baptism. So let me give you some characteristics of New Testament sacraments, okay? And this will help us get to the meaning of baptism. And if you wonder, well, it'll help us get to the meaning of baptism. The first element of a sacrament is this, they're divinely instituted by Christ himself. So when Jesus says in the Great Commission, make disciples of all nations, this is Jesus instituting baptism. To be practiced perpetually in the life of his church as the gospel advances. Make disciples of all nations. Christ is instituting it. Or, and you see the same thing in the Lord's table. If you um, look at Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 26, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper as a perpetual Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, the Apostle Paul picks that up in 1 Corinthians 11. It's why we still practice the Lord's Supper and baptism, because they're divinely instituted by Christ. Secondly, this. They are outward signs of invisible realities. James Bannerman, who has really been really helpful on the church this year, says this. The sacraments of the New Testament are sensible, sensible signs. Sensible. taste touch, feel, you know, Um, they're sensible signs of spiritual blessings, teaching and representing by outward actions, gospel truths. So they are outward signs of invisible realities. And so in the sacraments is an appeal to the senses and to the understanding. Whereas when I'm preaching to you, am I appealing to your senses? I'm appealing to your understanding. I'm saying, come reason with me think with me about what Scripture says. I'm giving you ideas and concepts to consider and reflect on in your own life. And what does the Scripture teach? I'm, and so uh, with the sacraments in particular, they don't only appeal to your understanding, they appeal to your senses. And they are a gift from God because of that. Now, preaching can make an effort to appeal to your senses. Let me teach the truth to you just by side note that illustrates the point. If I said, um, if I said, "Jesus' words are living water, pure water, purer than mountain stream water that you could just reach down into the stream with and lap up in your hands and enjoy, and it would be cleaner than any water you've ever drank before. And in your obedience to Jesus, as you drink deeply of his words, you would experience all of the blessings of the abundant life and the blessings of the covenant that God promises to those who are obedient. And then I said, but that's not what you do. What you do is, rather than drink deeply of Jesus' words, What you do is you go and fill a water bottle with sand. And you drink sand. And it's That's what it's like to go try to find life anywhere other than from Jesus' words. Now that's a principle that appeals to your senses through preaching, but it is not actually, I didn't say here, you need to drink sand right now in order to understand this. Right? And so it can appeal to your senses, but it's not in the same way. It's not as direct So the sacraments appeal to the senses. We, we, we lift hands in prayer. We lift hands in worship. We kneel in worship. It's normal for God use God's, uh, to use earthy things, physical things. We live a physical life. Everything is not esoteric and spiritual in such a way that having a body is bad. God uses these things to help us And so, in the Lord's table, I taste the juice, or historically, the wine. I taste it. I smell it. I taste the bread. I chew it. It appeals to the senses. In baptism, I feel the water. I feel myself going down under the water. I feel myself rising back out of the water. I feel the water washing or dripping off of me. It appeals to the senses. It also appeals to the understanding. In the Lord's table, right? I don't just eat something. I think. I think about the shedding of blood. I think up about the giving up of our Lord's broken body. I hope in the return of Christ. I trust the promises of God to deliver his church from every enemy. I I think about these things as I partake of the Lord's table. And in baptism, I, I think about being buried with Christ. I think about being raised with Christ. I think about being washed of my dirty old polluted nature and about being raised to newness of life. I think about being a new creation. I think about His Holy Spirit regenerating me and washing me. I think about how I belong to Christ and I am being marked out publicly as one of His own. Right To the understanding. Now, It's important that you understand that even though these are the two New Testament sacraments, these are means of sanctifying grace and of spiritual blessing to us from God Himself, it's not a new thing for God to appeal to your senses and to your understanding just in the New Testament. That's not when this started. It wasn't like these things were just built off of nothing. Think about this. In the first preaching of the gospel in Genesis 3:15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring; he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The first preaching of the gospel, this is the verbal proclamation of a coming savior who will destroy the work of the devil. That appeals to your understanding. But the whole embodiment of that promise, of the, the need for a Savior, what, what was the whole embodiment that God gave? The, 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 the sacrifice. And then the sacrificial system. I mean, if anything appealed to the senses, the sacrificial system, the outward embodiment of the need of a sacrifice, Who would be the Savior? Or in the Noahic covenant. Let me just read to you in Genesis chapter 9. In Genesis chapter 9, this is post flood, and God commands Noah, You be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. (laughs) I never noticed that before. Team on the earth. Speaking to man. You know, what do we always hear today? Especially from China. The world's overpopulated. The world's overpopulated. The world's overpopulated. There's not food to eat. No, you don't have food to eat because your government is tyrannical and wicked. That's why you don't have food to eat. All right? That's not this message. Then God said to Noah, And God said, okay, so that's, that's the nature of the covenant. But then God gives a sign. This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. That is, on the earth. They're signs. They're signs of invisible realities. It's also true in the Abrahamic covenant, right? God makes the covenant with Abraham. What is the sign of the covenant with Abraham? Circumcision. Circumcision is the sign of the covenant with Abraham. Just to not read as much... He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant." point being, the sign is circumcision, right? So there's something very sensible about circumcision, like crying babies. So God in grace to us has given us signs from the very beginning that teach and point to and represent truths that He's conveying to us. In the New Testament, those signs are the Lord's table and baptism. So the Lord's Table and baptism are the signs of the New Covenant. When we partake of them, they are signs that we partake of that we are members of the New Covenant. And then I want to finally say this. some So I'm on some characteristics of New Testament sacraments. That's where we're at. One is they're divinely instituted by Christ. Secondly, they are signs of invisible realities, oftentimes of covenant. And third, they are seals. They are seals of covenant membership. Now, before you get freaked out, understand what I'm talking about. This is the Westminster Confession says this in chapter 27: Sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace. When you think of the, hear the covenant of grace, just think God making a people for Himself. We all agree on that, don't we? God is making a people for Himself. And, um, and that's what the covenant of grace is. God making a people for himself. And the new covenant is the fulfillment of the covenant of grace. Okay, And sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace. Immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits. And here's the seal. And to confirm our interest in him is also to put a visible difference between those that belong into the church and the rest of the world. Right? There's a demarcation sign. Gentiles weren't circumcised unless they were becoming an Israelite of faith. There's a demarcation in baptism. There's a demarcation in the Lord's table. This is for Christians who have faith. It marks out the world. But now the word seal. So the sign is clearer to us, I think. You know, the bow in the clouds. Circumcision, it's a sign um, that God has made a covenant. But the word seal is, seems weird to us. I think it's harder for us to get our mind around. It's harder for me to get my mind around. But this is what Scripture itself says. It's important that you understand that um, the terminology is actually in Romans, and you've read it tons of times. And you've never known what you were reading. But you've read it tons of times. Romans chapter 4, verse 11, speaking of Abraham, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Right? So, this is biblical language signs and seals the circumcision was a sign and a seal in Romans 4:11 so what in the world do we mean by a seal well what we mean is it confirms the validity that abraham is a member of is a, is a covenant member with god right that abraham is in covenant with god it's a it's a confirming validity. It's important that you understand by seal that we don't mean that Abraham was saved by circumcision. I mean that, that idea just turns the whole Bible and the gospel entirely wrongheaded. That's like everything that was wrong with Israel was they trusted in circumcision. So that absolutely is not what those who hold to the gospel would understand the word seal to be meaning but is a confirmation of it like in Noah when God sees the rainbow that rainbow witnesses to God himself I will remember my everlasting covenant between me and the earth it's a confirmation of validity it's and there's examples of this all through scripture Jacob and Laban you know when they're fighting what do they do they use a heap of stones And the heap of stones becomes a property boundary that I will not cross it and you will not cross it. And this heap of stones witnesses to our covenant with one another that we won't cross this boundary to do harm to one another. It's a seal. It's something that validates, confirms the truth of. So when we partake of the Lord's table regularly, are participating in these very visible actions for all who have faith in the Lord Jesus and not for those who do not have faith in the Lord Jesus. All who have faith in the Lord Jesus, this confirms our membership in the covenant and that we have access to the spiritual blessings of the new covenant and the life to come. It confirms it to us. It reminds us that we are gods. That's the seal. We are... Truly his. And not only, and, and so what does a seal like that do for us? Right, the seal does not mean that saving grace is confirmed, that somehow we didn't have relation. You hear me saying that repeatedly, right? We're not talking about justifying grace and saving grace. We're not talking about being sealed in our relationship with God in some way that it's established. We're confirming that we are His. And so my heart, when we're thinking about baptism or the Lord's table, I am assured that I am a covenant member in the body of Christ. Whereas what would happen if we said, you know, the way you're living your life right now and your unwillingness to repent of it, you probably shouldn't partake of the Lord's table for a little while. What is meant by that? Well, what's meant by that is to remove someone's assurance. And that that grief that we would give to them in discipline would actually help lead them to Christ. To a godly sorrow and a salvation without regret. But when I partake of them, I'm assured that I'm a covenant member in the body of Christ. I am assured by God's grace that I belong to Christ. I'm assured by the outward sign That the visible transformation of heart and life by Christ Himself and to Christ Himself is true. It's a reminder to me of how real the work of Christ is on my behalf. He died and was raised again. And I have died to sin and am raised with Him to newness of life. And think about how much of a help that is to you in your weak and wobbling faith when you can hardly believe that Jesus could ever love you. You know, how kind it is of God to give us things like this. To help us. No, no weak saint. You are a covenant member. You are a member of the new covenant and you are privy to all of its blessings. And the partaking of it is a witness to you of that reality. That that is true. It's a seal. It's a sign and it's a seal. Confirmed. Valid. It reassures. Okay. I will have to expound more on the meaning of baptism. But do you at least see how understanding the nature of what's going on here is helpful and important? to starting to understand how important... Baptism is in the Christian life. When you go down under the water, that's a witness to you forever. When you see others go down under the water, it's a witness to you both for their sake and for yours. I want to say again, on everything that I've said so far today, the unity between Baptists in a historical and Reformed sense and Presbyterians on everything I have taught today. There's no division on anything I've taught today in its essence. I mean, everybody pretty much agrees on everything that I've said today. Um, Some Baptists might not use the word sacrament because of their fear of Roman Catholicism. They just use the word ordinance. But you know what Baptists are really bad at? Can I just chide Baptists for a second? Okay. And I am one and have done this, and so I'm very well aware. Baptists are really bad at pointing out dangers in other people and not seeing them in themselves. So Baptists are really great at going, well, the word sacrament is dangerous, but the word ordinance is perfect. <laughs> no, there's dangers to the word ordinance. Do you know what the danger of the word using the word ordinance is? Removing the reality of God actually working in the sacrament. Just making it an outward thing that doesn't really mean that much. Other than we just remember something, and that's it. We just remember, it it's pure, becomes purely outward and purely memorial, and God actually isn't working in it. Now, to a Reformed Baptist, when they use the word ordinance, they, they mean it in the sense that, Uh, it's still a means of grace, of sanctifying grace. When modern Baptists use it, it's purely memorial. It's purely memorial, modern traditional Baptists. And it's not purely memorial. So, but historically, between Reformed Baptists and Presbyterians, on the nature of the sign and the seal... Um, and in the essential meaning, even if we use a different word, we mean the same thing as far as the concepts are concerned. Now, I just want to close with this God is just so kind to his church, he's just so kind, he's just the kindest father. and the lord's table and baptism are one of just his kindnesses to help us in our weakness to shore us up and strengthen us you know when we think well whatever i've done i must be outside of the i must be outside of god's covenant you know i mean how many of us have thought that so many times well, I've gone too far now. I'm, you know, too afraid now. I'm too, I don't know, whatever. It's, I mean, the way we think about God is we make one bad choice and it's over. We have like one overwhelming moment. It's over. It's all over. That's how we function. We are so weak. You know? And we're just pitiful. Like the blood of Christ and the body of Christ, the second person of the Trinity, was really banking on us never failing one time. So you failed bad. It's over! Because we just are so faithless. We're just so faithless in the mercies of God that come to us in Christ and in His Gospel. And so, one of the primary demonstrations of God's kindness to us in our weakness and faith is the Lord's Table and baptism. To strengthen our faith to be a witness as clear as the a clearer witness than the bow in the clouds is that God will not flood the earth a clearer witness to us that we are members of the new covenant we are participants of all the blessings of being Christ's church and so we have the lord's table and baptism that we can touch and feel and taste and see perpetually to confirm in our hearts these things. Father, we do pray that You would work in mystery and in power so graciously to strengthen our faith, to witness to us in baptism and in the Lord's table that we are Yours and You are ours, that we belong to You, That there are obligations for us to keep in obedience to you. That there is blessing promised to us as members of the new covenant. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a kind, kind Father to us. We thank you that your grace superabounds well beyond all our sins. We thank you that you don't treat us according to our transgressions, but according to your mercies. And we thank you and pray that you would elevate in our hearts and lives the importance and meaning of baptism. And I pray for our church as we consider a different way forward in thinking about how to live life together in love with baptism, that you would help us to Grow in humility through it. Doubtless we're going to fail, sin against each other, and say the wrong thing. Maybe say the wrong thing in the wrong time as we try to figure this out. Help us to walk with forgiveness, with the hearts of mercy that You've shown us. Always being mindful of how much the, how great the debt was that we ourselves were forgiven. Always mindful of the consideration that Others must have been forgiven of less than ourselves. And would you help us to come together and find a way forward that would be wise, godly, good, full of love and charity where so much is already agreed upon. Thank you, Father, for your love. We trust you and we ask for your help In Jesus' name, amen. No closing song today. You are loved.